This is The Guardian. Welcome to Weekend, a podcast that helps you switch off from your busy day-to-day and find entertainment and inspiration in the best Guardian and Observer writing from the week. You can either listen to this as one podcast or play each article as individual listens. Just go down the description on the podcast page for the timings of what we are featuring. Coming up, columnist Marina Hyde reminds Matt Hancock and the home front heroes that this really isn't the time to be relaunching careers. Journalist David Hillier asks, can a new generation of plant-eating bodybuilders bust the myth that real men eat meat? Bridgerton's Nicola Coughlin talks to The Observer's L Hunt on luck, social media, and her nice list. And writer Jamie Klingler finally learns to date without drinking. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. Before we jump in, a quick warning. There's a bit of bad language in this episode. First up. As the world's media is saturated by images of a cruel and deadly war in Ukraine, Matt Hancock's candid podcast interview, or I told you so's from the likes of George Galloway, feel woefully unnecessary. Here, Marina High calls out the posturing and bandwagon jumping, pointing out that, chaps, the war in Ukraine is not for your exhilaration. Let me begin this column, loosely themed Men of the Home Front by observing that only Matt Hancock could opt to relaunch his political career at this precise moment. On Monday, the former health secretary made news landfall with an appearance on a podcast hosted by someone from Dragon's Den, in which he discussed the prevailing issue of our time, Matt Hancock's romantic life. Donning the polo neck of contrition, Last seen on Dapper Laughs for a Newsnight appearance in 2014, Hancock explained he had had to break his own coronavirus guidance because he fell in love. Of the female aide in question, he explained, We spent a lot of time together, ironically trying to get me to communicate in a more emotionally intelligent way. Thank you, Alanis. Although it actually has ended up being quite ironic. All that incredible work on his emotional intelligence, and Matt still ends up saying it out loud on a day otherwise dominated by grotesque pictures of war and human carnage from Ukraine. Then again, perhaps Matt has quite accidentally performed a valuable public service. He has selflessly redeployed as a pressure valve providing a useful outlet for all the adult Brits who have been just itching for a chance to stride onto this or that platform and utter the words, For God's sake, don't you know there's a war on? The answer is that yes, of course he does. We have to keep podcasting, though. It's what separates us from the barbarians. Indeed, perhaps mindful that this pre-recorded appearance might clash unflatteringly with events, Matt was outside the Russian embassy in London last weekend, a visit recorded somewhat idiosyncratically by his Twitter account. I say idiosyncratically 
Because outside the Russian embassy these days, most people currently photograph what they find there. The graffiti, the crowds, the ever-growing number of signs and banners. Yet the image posted to Matt's account, perhaps taken by his emotional intelligence coach, showed Matt himself talking intently to protesters, much in the manner of the Queen Mother visiting the East End during the Blitz, which is hugely emotionally intelligent from a guy who is, after all, just another random member of the public like them. Still, what a difference six weeks makes. In January, Hancock's decision to stage an early morning swim in the icy serpentine resulted in people dismissively comparing him to Vladimir Putin. My sadly unrealizable dream is that all this ends in a way in which people dismissively compare Putin to Matt Hancock. Hancock has yet to demand that NATO enforce a no-fly zone over Ukraine because we've all fallen in love with the country. But on this form, who'd rule it out? In any case, there are plenty of other men of the home front who are demanding this act of war against Russia, just as there are plenty who never stop shouting, yet somehow imagine themselves not listened to. Take George Galloway, please, who'd like you to know he was right again. As he puts it, me, Farage, Hitchens, Carson and Rod Little are a pretty broad front of people who think NATO expansion to the borders of hashtag Russia was a pretty bad idea. Maybe pause and think about that. I know what he means. Me and the three Spider-Men I'm pointing at are a pretty broad front too. We actually bonded when we divorced our MJs and they turned the Spidey kids against us. Meanwhile, Farage himself has performed a 180-degree pivot to demanding things like, why is Biden not in Europe taking the lead? Which is a fairly selective form of rectitude for a man who spent years praising the way Putin operated. Poignantly, Nigel's obsession with wars never quite runs to understanding which side he'd have been on in them. His ability to form alliances with far-right German parties at the same time as twatting on about Winston Churchill, for instance, indicates a truly remarkable flexibility. I'm sure Nigel's bitterest regret is that he's not quite flexible and sprightly enough to rock up at the Ukrainian embassy and offer to fight, as some British guys are now doing. I know you have to say, I admire the bravery. But reading about one man with no military experience who hadn't even told his family he was off to Ukraine, he has children. We might instead point to the Defence Secretary's caution against this kind of action. Be it online or in real life, the alarm bells toll most heavily when you get the feeling that the person in question finds war, or rather their idea of it, somehow exhilarating. Perhaps it was always like this. And it's just easier to see now half the world posts their inner monologue. But there seems to be such a fine line between virility and virality. Was this Second World War saddled with politicians like Michael Fabricant, who on Monday announced that RAF Bryce Norton, which is in Oxfordshire, is indeed the front line? Because really it isn't. That's not the war. War is the bloodied woman in Maripol holding a pink bobble hat, frozen in the camera's gaze as a shrapnel-filled small girl dies in the ambulance behind her. War is some hatchet-faced Kremlin general informing military families that the government will pay them 11,000 rubles for their dead sons. That's 75 quid now. Less tomorrow. War is people who this time a week ago were out in Kiev's shops, now making Molotov cocktails with their children. And yes, war can elevate the most ordinary people to do the most extraordinary things. We want heroes. We need heroes. And Vladimir Zelensky and so many Ukrainians have given us them. What we have less need of is performances on the home front. Chaps, with the best will in the world, this one really isn't about you. That was I'm Begging You, Hancock and the Homefront Heroes, 
Just Sit This One Out by Marina Hyde. Read by Neve Cusack. Next, David Hillier has tolerated negative comments of being a vegan his entire life. But more recently, he has noticed a sea change as society slowly starts to accept veganism as a new normal. There is one thing that has yet to evolve though, and that has been men's attitude and their perception of veganism. Here, David explores whether a new wave of vegans has the power to finally deconstruct the trope that meat equals masculinity. This piece is read by Safia Inga. And just to say that this article does feature descriptions of medical emergencies that might be upsetting. It was a Sunday afternoon in the late 1980s and the house was filled with the fatty scent of roast lamb. I absentmindedly inquired about the origins of lunch and my brother pointed at the mewing sheep in the field adjacent to our house. I was a five-year-old boy and I decided on the spot to become the first vegetarian in my family. My parents, while broadly supportive, were understandably bemused and concerned. It was a less enlightened time and my lack of dietary protein was a constant worry. They assuaged this by occasionally feeding me chicken McNuggets under the not entirely misplaced logic that they weren't really meat. After I'd cottoned on, I would sheepishly order a cheeseburger, without the burger, whenever we went to McDonald's. I became accustomed to teasing and shaming, from digs at the apparently tasteless gruel I was consuming, to the ubiquitous use of gay as an insult, mostly from guys who seemed offended by my decision to not eat dead things. I didn't know anyone else, male or female, who was veggie. I hated ordering food when out with groups of lads because I knew there'd be titters and comments about my masculinity. From the years I was at school, right into my 20s, rarely a day passed without some sort of jibe about my diet. As a result, for many years, I hid the real reason, claiming it was simply habit rather than sensitivity to animal welfare. Thankfully... Non-animal diets are no longer a niche concern. McDonald's even has a McPlant burger now, while vegan celebrities and Netflix documentaries are helping to normalise the concept of meat abstention or reduction. According to a 2019 survey commissioned by the Vegan Society, the number of UK vegans quadrupled to 600,000 between 2014 and 2019. Britons have reduced their meat intake by almost 17% in a decade, according to a 2021 study in the Lancet's Planetary Health Journal. Yet, not everything has changed. The percentage of men taking part in Veganuary, which has grown from 168,000 to 580,000 participants since 2018, dropped from 15% in 2018 to 13% in 2021. Research last year, published in the journal PLOS One, also found that the diet of the average British male produces 40% more carbon emissions than that of females, largely due to increased meat consumption. Most men aren't foregoing their bacon sarnies yet, and nor should we be surprised. They are still the target audience of the dirty burger and barbecue boom, as tattooed hipsters serve grilled meats from street food trucks. But how did meat become synonymous with laddishness in the first place? And at a time when cutting back meat and dairy is wildly hailed as the simplest way to reduce our carbon footprint, does the best hope of convincing men to put down their kebabs really rest with a new generation of hench vegan bros? Carol J. Adams is a Texas writer who, since the 90s, has explored the patriarchal connotations of meat consumption in books such as The Sexual Politics of Meat and The Pornography of Meat, which was recently updated and reissued. We live in a world that's heavily invested in a gender binary that defines things as male or female, she says. The things associated with men are more highly valued. Every time a man becomes a vegan... It challenges basic assumptions about masculinity and femininity. These outdated assumptions are rooted in the age-old gender roles of male as hunter and female as caregiver. Ed Winters, a.k.a. Earthling Ed, is a British vegan activist and author with more than 400,000 YouTube subscribers. 
He says that online barbs about his supposedly compromised masculinity or sexuality are common. We speak over Skype. He's in North America visiting university campuses and talking one-to-one with students about veganism. Almost all the people who debate me are men. They are certainly the ones most proud of eating meat, he says. Often they are proud of their lack of empathy for animals. I've never had that with a woman. I get called soy boy and there's a lot of, Ed must be gay because he's vegan. Over the past five years, soy boy has become a favorite insult of the far right online, used to refer not only to vegans, but to all liberals. I noticed the rise of this slur with amusement, as when I met my first ever male vegetarian friend Lee at university, we proudly called ourselves the soy boys. These stereotypes endure in popular culture. Whether it's steak and blowjob day, which started as a satirical, meme-based idea that men deserve their own masculine equivalent of Valentine's Day on March 14th, Jeremy Clarkson declaring last summer that normal people eat meat, or Boris Johnson claiming in 2020 that veganism is a crime against cheese lovers. Vegan men challenge what people traditionally perceive to be manly, Winters says, but what we perceive to be masculine is also a social construct, created by advertising, by media, and by peer pressure. The demonization of non-animal diets can be traced back to what is now widely seen as the protein myth. The idea that protein is the key to strength, with meat, the primary source, arose in the early 20th century. The Lancets set out the counter-argument in a paper called The Great Protein Fiasco, published in 1974, and research has continually debunked the notion that a non-animal diet cannot provide enough protein. Caroline Farrell is a nutritionist who worked with Watford and Fulham football clubs between 2012 and 2018. Five years ago, it was very rare to have a male with a vegan diet, she says. Now, I would say about 40% of my male clients are. It is very easy for a vegan diet to meet the recommendations for protein. Farrell adds that a plant-based diet can help protect against chronic diseases such as colorectal cancer, type 2 diabetes, and cardiovascular disease. Animal proteins are called complete proteins because they contain all the essential amino acids. Most plant proteins, except soya, quinoa, and hemp, lack one or more of these. But vegans can easily obtain all the essential amino acids they need by eating a variety of plant proteins each day. These can include soya products such as tofu or tempeh, dried beans, lentils, chickpeas, grains, and nuts. It helps that veganism's image is shifting. Take Netflix's 2018 documentary, The Game Changers, which follows UFC fighter James Wilkes as he investigates the benefits of a plant-based diet for professional athletes. It was executive produced by Arnold Schwarzenegger, who appears alongside endurance runners, American footballers, boxers and strong men who have all forsaken meat and dairy. The Austrian oak himself is reportedly 99% vegan now. The Game Changers powerfully illustrates that plant-based foods can deliver both strength and endurance in abundance, says Richard McIlwain, CEO of the Vegetarian Society. I'd argue that until very recently, the idea that meat provides protein, which equates to strength, was still a part of mainstream thinking. McIlwain credits the influence of Lewis Hamilton, who co-produced The Game Changers and started following a plant-based diet in 2018, Hamilton has blown the typically machismo, male, white, Formula One environment open. He is a young black man from a working-class background who is vegan and campaigns for animal welfare. McIlwain also cites the rise of meat substitutes in supermarkets. Steaks can be plant-based, and the protein content is advertised on the front as a clear selling point, he says. Men can still identify with cultural male stereotypes, positive or otherwise, without the meat. Enter the vegan bro, the guy who has become plant-based as a device to accrue power and status, who isn't afraid to show this to the world, especially on Instagram, where shredded men come together under the vegan gains and vegan AF hashtags. The cult 2014 book, Meat is for Pussies, a how-to guide for dudes who want to get fit, kick ass and take names, conflates veganism with some grisly bro stereotypes in a bid to turn men away from what author John Joseph, seemingly without irony, 
calls the chronic pussyism of meat consumption. There are plenty of vegan Instagram bodybuilders, including Patrick Baboumian, who starred in The Game Changers, and Jordan Drains, aka Conscious Muscle, whose feeds are full of muscle shots but don't lean on such tub-thumping stereotypes. A far more inflammatory figure is Richard Burgess, the 30-year-old Canadian vegan YouTuber known as Vegan Gains. He has 325,000 subscribers to his channel and has transitioned from a vegan bodybuilder into a shock video jock aggressively debating diet and shaming omnivores. Among his many controversies is a video linking the cancer diagnosis of bodybuilder and fellow YouTuber Furious Pete to his non-vegan diet, and a 2015 episode in which he briefly uploaded a video of his grandfather having the heart attack that killed him, a cautionary tale, apparently, about the dangers of eating meat. Is this strand of veganism guilty of recycling the same old cliches about gender? A 2020 research paper analysed the behaviour of male vegan influencers and found that, while vegan men often saw their dietary choices as evidence of a progressive outlook, they would do well to embrace a feminist and intersectional veganism that is not dominated by masculinist ideals. The irony of vegan men referring to meat-eaters as pussies is not lost on Adams. It's not undoing the association with women and negativity. She points to the term hegan, a portmanteau of he and vegan, coined in a 2010 article about male vegans and defined by the Urban Dictionary as a trendy male vegan. It's this need to not be associated with women, who are perceived by society to be more compassionate and empathic, Adams says. But the world needs more compassion. Why is compassion feared? How do we undo this situation so that men are no longer afraid of being compassionate? For those seeking a middle path between the ethical vegan and the vegan bro, look no further than Henry Firth and Ian Thiesby, founders of vegan food line and cookbook company Bosch. The friends from Sheffield, both 37, adopted a plant-based diet in early 2015. Finding that everything in the vegan food sphere was either old-fashioned and boring in design, according to Firth, or skewed towards a yoga, beauty and wellness-focused audience, they started their YouTube channel, Bosch TV, in 2016, posting snappy recipes for vegan burgers, pies, curries and pasta. They have put their names to six vegan cookbooks. Their first is the UK's best-selling, with their latest, Bosch on a Budget, published last December. The branding is brash and unapologetic. Appealing to men without alienating women is important to them, Firth says. Six or seven years ago, veganism was not seen as very male-friendly. Everything was all lads, meat, steak and burgers. We wanted to show you can be a normal guy and eat vegan food. They have noticed a transformation in their audience. Following the game changers, it has become more acceptable for guys to admit to a plant-based diet, Firth says. Maybe the term plant-based is a way for people to say they're not eating animals, but in a way they don't feel is signing up to a certain ideology. Nevertheless, they aren't immune to pushback. Trolls, mostly men, regularly hit their inbox. They'll send us DMs with all capital letters about how they're really enjoying a steak, says Thiesby, who points out that they receive most opprobrium for commandeering terms such as sausage, burger or steak for their plant-based recipes. Most notable was Pierce Morgan, with whom they cheerily debated on Good Morning Britain in 2019. Pierce's vibe was, It's fine to have your vegan food. Do as you wish, but stop stealing our words, Thiesby says. Bosch is just one of a number of male-friendly businesses now selling vegan products or lifestyles. The burgers, faux bacon and chicken pieces of this, trademarked, whose single-syllable name and blocky black-and-white design aesthetic are thematically similar to Bosch, are now found in Tesco, Sainsbury's and chains such as Cafe Nero and Pho. The Happy Pairs, aspirationally handsome vegan twins, David and Stephen Flynn, have sold more than a quarter of a million cookbooks, building a million-strong social media reach with a mission to improve health, happiness and community. Meat and dairy consumption has become an issue of planetary urgency. 
A 2013 UN report found that 14.5% of our global greenhouse gas emissions were caused by the livestock industry, while a 2018 study in the journal Science stated that if we stopped consuming meat and dairy, farmland could be reduced by 75% while still feeding the planet's population, effectively enabling us to rewild the world. We must change our diet. The planet can't support billions of meat eaters, said David Attenborough in his 2020 biographical documentary, A Life on Our Planet. Confronting gendered stereotypes about meat eating will certainly help. A US study released last November in the journal Appetite found that conformity, or otherwise, to traditional gender roles was still a good predictor of people's meat consumption and openness to vegetarianism for environmental reasons. Among my male peers, the environmental arguments for meat reduction do seem to be gaining traction. At restaurants, I find my fellow diners to be sweetly, sometimes proudly curious, happily commenting that my food looks tasty and that they had a decent vegan burger only last week. Recently, I had a lively conversation about tofu preparation methods on an all-male WhatsApp group. This exchange would not have occurred until now, partly because I would have avoided having it. Meeting another vegetarian or vegan, especially a male one, used to be like finding a lone stranger in a foreign bar who loves your favourite band. Nowadays, it's like everyone in the bar knows your band, likes the singles, and is curious for the next album to arrive. That was Men and Veganism. I hated ordering food when out with groups of lads. I knew there would be comments about my masculinity by David Hillier, read by Safia Inger. We'll be back after this short break. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Welcome back to Weekend. Now, five years ago, she was working in an optician. Then came Dairy Girls and Bridgerton. Now she's a Hollywood name. No wonder Nicola Coughlin can't believe her good fortune. Elle Hunt explores how the Irish actor got here and how she juggles the reality of a lifelong dream. Read by Neve Cusack. I have a nice list, declares Nicola Coughlin. She pauses, perhaps to catch her breath at the end of another mile-a-minute answer, or perhaps for dramatic effect. Of celebrities! The disclosure comes somewhat out of nowhere, 40 minutes into our Friday afternoon interview on Zoom. I'd asked the star of Dairy Girls and Bridgerton about her public love-in with Kim Kardashian, not the tabs she'd been keeping privately on her new famous friends. In fact, Coughlin explains, ideally her nice list is of names she hasn't met herself. People are always going to be nice to you, aren't they? This has to be evidence from several sources that they're nice. Margot Robbie is on it. I've heard wonderful things about her. So's Kardashian. My bestie, Kim, Coughlin jokes, who in fact sent her the shearling hoodie she's wearing now. And there was someone else, Coughlin can't remember, but, she tells me, 
She's adding to it all the time. What about a naughty list, I ask. Oh yeah, that's incredibly long, she says immediately. But everyone wants to know who's awful. Don't you want to know who's nice? Cochlin welcomes me into her London flat as if I'm an old friend, apologising for being the world's messiest bastard. Her robot vacuum cleaner fighting a losing battle against the chaos not quite concealed behind her. She turns her camera to show me three half-unpacked suitcases. Like, what university fresher lives in this? She's 35, but easily could pass for early 20s. Cochlin has just returned after a month-long mega-haul split between work and play in New York, Austin and Hawaii. Next week she'll be going back to New York, with the third and final season of Derry Girls due later this year, and Bridgerton returning to Netflix in March. Shonda Rhimes' spin on the Regency England marriage market was, until recently, Netflix's biggest ever original, watched by 82 million households in early 2021. It's since been overtaken by Squid Game. At the time, Cochrane points out, spirits needed lifting with candy-coloured costumes and uncomplicated plots. It was such an escape and unapologetically joyful. There's no cynicism to it. I love a dark, moody drama as much as the next person, but there was a real gap for something like Bridgerton. That said, she adds, we certainly didn't think it was going to be the number one show on Netflix. How do you process that? You don't, I think, is the answer. Skip the next few paragraphs to avoid spoilers for the season one finale. Although such is the industrial internet Bridgerton complex that you'll have been hard-pressed to avoid them already. The show concluded on a cliffhanger, with the gossip girl-esque society columnist Lady Whistledown, narrated by Julie Andrews, revealed as Cochrane's character, the bookish Penelope Featherington. Cochrane knew from the start, but had to be careful not to give the game away with her performance. It had to be very subtle, she says. Selfishly, as an actor, I got to have so much fun. There was so much more given to me this time that I could play with. Indeed, it's a win for wallflowers everywhere. The bookish, always the bridesmaid type is shown to be the linchpin of the plot, with hidden riches and all of polite society in her thrall. Who cares if she gets the guy? There are parallels between Cochlin and her character, I suggest, an outsider on the A-list, a self-styled infiltrator of the elite, reporting back on the powerful and privileged to an eager public. Cochlin often shares her own star-struck encounters with her 1.3 million Instagram followers and a further 300,000 on Twitter. But pride comes before a fall for Penelope, Cochlin hints. She's sort of letting herself run away with it. Part of what makes Cochlin so engaging on social media is that she's excited by other people's celebrity and unfazed by her own. She and queer eyes Jonathan Van Ness became friends after she made a hoodie with his face on it. She and Kim Kardashian struck up a correspondence late last year after Cochlin revealed on Twitter that the Kardashians were the basis for the Featherington clan in Bridgerton. What? I am freaking out, responded Kim. Cochlin has not only met her heroes, but won their acclaim. RuPaul told me I was funny, so I can die happy now. Saturday Night Live's Kate McKinnon said she was her favourite Derry girl. And I'm sorry to the others, but I'm not going to not tell people that. Many might have lost themselves in an ascent as rapid as hers, but Cochrane says it's the opposite. She has not been part of this world long enough to take it for granted. Literally, I was working part-time in an optician's five years ago, so for me, if anyone is tuning in, if anyone makes a connection to me, that's amazing. All my life, I feel like I'm a competition winner. Like, how did I end up here? Cochrane's childhood in Galway was nothing like Derry Girls. She also had little in common with Claire, the anxious wee lesbian she plays. 
I had these grand notions that I wanted to go off and be an actor. I was always roping my friends into making my own movies and plays. She scored her first job at age nine as Little Girl Feeding Swans in an action thriller named My Brother's War. She would have abandoned school right then had her parents entertained the notion. As it was, Cochrane went on to do a foundation course at Oxford School of Drama before finally starting at Birmingham School of Acting. In acting, she found an effortless, obvious outlet for her lifelong exuberance and sensitivity. It fed my soul. It just felt so right. Like when people meet their soulmates, you just know. But she was not prepared for the reality of being an actor. Just before graduating in 2011, students were made to come up with a business plan for acting success. It was a sobering moment for Coughlin, then 24. I remember looking at it like, this is bollocks, this makes no sense. I don't come from money. I have to work a full-time job. How do I go to an audition with a full-time job? All of it hit me. The years after drama school were horrific, Coughlin says. A test of not just her love for acting, but her livelihood. For nearly a year, she did not audition at all. I was desperately trying to be proactive, but it's just oversubscribed. With the odds against her, she fell into depression. It was horrendous. I was in a really bad place. There's a lot put on people to make it overnight. And Derry Girls, in a sense, was an overnight success. But I got my first job at nine years old, she says. It was really a long time for me. In four years, Coughlin moved to London three times, then back in with her parents in Galway. I just felt like the worst failure in the world. Like I'd wasted time. I was pitying myself. Why did you think you could do this? She had no savings and often no money. That's not an exaggeration. My bank account was dry. She was also in debt, having taken out a loan to pay for drama school. I say all the time, yes, money does make you happy. But unless you've been really broke, you don't know the stress. How it takes up all your time and sucks the joy, says Coughlin. I still get scared to check my bank account. I still have that fear in me. It's not that long ago that I couldn't afford a cup of coffee. She found a job working two days a week at an optician's and remained there for 18 months, practising her autograph on appointment letters. Her break, when it came, could not have been more serendipitous. She responded to an open casting call posted on Twitter, then landed the part of Jess in Jess and Joe Forever at the Old Vic. Coughlin's colleagues at the opticians farewelled her with macaroons, prosecco and a card reading Goodbye and good luck. I remember saying to myself, I'm never going to have a normal job again, says Coughlin. She still refers to a photo from her last day at the opticians as a reminder of how far she's come. As sliding door moments go, she knows that she just slipped through. It's so rare that someone actually gets to do this as a job. Everything I'm ever doing, I think, imagine if that hadn't happened. Five years later, Coughlin has two hit shows and transatlantic name recognition. Derry Girls was a surprise hit for Netflix in the US, with no marketing and hyper-local humour. Proof to Coughlin of a universal truth. That teenage girls can be fucking hilarious. Now, Coughlin's celebrity sheen one of Vogue's best-dressed women of 2021, with an access most areas pass in Hollywood, is tempered by her novelty as a small Irish acting person, to quote her Twitter bio. She's easy to root for as the gal from Galway, infiltrating the A-list. She tells me about crashing Elton John's Oscars party in February 2020, hosted by Van Ness. We took our own pictures on the red carpet because no one was going to take pictures of us. We were pissing ourselves, laughing, like this is the funniest thing. I compare it to being like that really old aunt at a wedding who's very happy to get an invite. But as excitable as Coughlin is about others' celebrity, she is more ambivalent about her own. She recently likened the experience of being famous to being a dog on the tube. She has 
an important addendum when I bring it up now. Some people hate dogs. The sheer size of her following has forced her to revisit her relationship with social media. Last month, Coughlin posted a mirror selfie to Instagram and Twitter above a heartfelt request. If you have an opinion about my body, please, please don't share it with me. It's really hard to take the weight of thousands of opinions on how you look being sent directly to you every day. Coughlin had considered the post for a while, she says, motivated not so much by criticism of her appearance, but by the scrutiny. I'm not naive enough to think I can change trolls. It was more people just offering comments that they felt were fine. But actually, that's worse to me. She's reluctant to share specifics, if only so as not to extend the hurt. It's just the language that's used around women's bodies. Words have meaning. If you're saying specific things about how someone looks, you can say, this is just a word. Sure, but it's not to me. Her post was friendly and firm, with comments turned off so as to make clear she was not inviting a dialogue. And Coughlin says she has noticed the difference in discussion since. But it is telling that her polite request for respect was written up as a celebrity clapback and her boundaries ignored to make a broader point about body positivity. Coughlin's mum saw the headlines and called her, concerned her daughter was under siege. Like... She slams critics. She drops the mic. Thank you for speaking out. But no, says Coughlin. That was literally, selfishly about me as a human. It was misconstrued by a lot of people as me taking down the haters. Nope. This is me trying to tell you directly how I feel. I don't mean it in a mean way. I'm just saying I would prefer this way going forward. It is not the first time in Cochlear's relatively short career that she has had to counter scrutiny of her body. In 2018, she sought and received an apology from the British Theatre Guide over its male critics' attention to her weight. But, though she is an active feminist, she is wary of being painted as a trailblazer of body positivity. Her wish, Cochlear says, is for attention to be focused on her acting. I don't want people to think that they own that part of me, she says. If I want to turn around and become a hench-ass bodybuilder, if I want to shave my head or cover myself in tattoos, I'm going to do that. If I had a role to play, like an Olympic gymnast, I will alter my body for that part if that's the part I want to play. She's likewise stepped back from Twitter, finding herself bored by the lack of nuance and sanctimonious responses to jokes. She likens social media to a classroom of kids, joking around, jostling for popularity. When you become a known person, you're like the weird teacher saying, I'm still in on the joke, and they go, you're not anymore. Actually, all this stuff is wrong with you. Most people are not trying to be cruel, and I would hate to completely shut down that dialogue. But your mental health has to come first. It reflects Coughlin's reckoning with her new status as an insider not in every woman, of coming to terms with her cachet and considering how to spend it. She takes none of it for granted, though Bridgerton has been confirmed for at least two further series. I've heard young actors talk about buying sports cars and I just think, oh Jesus Christ, please don't. You just think nothing is guaranteed. She models herself after Judy Dench, who said she's just glad to still be working. Coughlin is even grateful now for her slow start. I've seen it go the other way, where people get amazing opportunities really young and they are full, wide-awake nightmares, which returns us to her naughty list. There's lots of terrible people, of course, she says cheerily. Name me one, I say. Cochrane pauses and for a moment, convinced that she's a competition winner and I'm her best friend, I think she will. Then she affects a lofty voice and regal bearing, befitting of Lady Whistledown. They will out themselves in time, she declares, nose comically upturned. I hope. I hope and pray. Then she dissolves into giggles. That was I Feel Like a Competition Winner 
Bridgerton's Nicola Coughlin on luck, social media, and her nice list by L. Hunt. Read by Neve Cusack. Finally, after a 10-year hiatus, Jamie Klingler is back in the dating game, but with a twist. This time, there'll be no alcohol to help things along. Here, she takes a step into the unknown and discovers what an eye-opener sober dating can be and the surprising positives that have come out of it. Read by Safia Ingar. Is he going to look anything like the picture online? Are we going to have anything to talk about? Is this dress too revealing? What if he's an anti-vaxxer? These are all normal anxieties that come with the territory of online dating. Anxieties that I used to smooth over with a few large glasses of white wine before a date. But now, now is new. Now is different. I've been out of the dating game for a decade, and in the meantime, I quit drinking. Every first date I ever had was in a pub. Usually my local, so I had the added safety buffer of knowing all the regulars and the barman. What are you supposed to do on a date if not drink? How do you get up the nerve to kiss them? What am I meant to do if not drink until they get funny or handsome enough for the aforementioned kissing? There were a bunch of factors at play when I re-entered the dating world last April. We were still in a distanced, wearing masks in restaurants when walking to your table type of world. And everyone was out of practice with human contact, let alone first dates. Social anxiety and awkwardness were radiating from people that had been locked inside with their cats or toddlers for a year. I was not yet confident enough with my sobriety to wear it proudly and treat it like a superpower. It was more a tick box at the end of my Bumble profile than something I accentuated. And my initial dates reflected that. I was still trying to date in pubs, like a drinker rather than doing other activities where we could engage with each other without sharing a bottle or three of wine. I was camouflaging this huge change in my behaviour and life by trying to keep up with their drinking pace with non-alcoholic beers. But I was not enjoying myself at all. I wasn't looking to date someone else who was sober, but I also didn't want to date anyone who socially drank like I used to. That is to say, excessively. I didn't want to sell a false bill of goods either. I'm not someone who goes to museums or the proms, and pretending to like those things more than I do would end up with those same out-of-sorts feelings. I thought dog walks might be the key to my dating. I have an elderly cavalier King Charles Spaniel, McNulty, whom I adore. Dog walks are incredible with people who you are connected to and want to spend hours with, but they are awful for a 45-minute stroll around the heath with a stranger because there is no eye contact and you're often stopping to pick up dog poo. I ended up going on 18 first dates in April and May last year and didn't say yes to any second dates. The main thing that was wrong with all of my initial sober dates was me. I was unsure of myself. I was like Bambi, unsteady on my new spindly legs, which meant I had lost a lot of my bravado and charm. I wasn't owning this new phase of my life. I was just trying to act as if I hadn't changed at all, and it was not working. So I took a hiatus. I took some time off to own the fact that I am a non-drinker, and that I don't want dates that primarily revolve around cocktails. I run food festivals. I love trying new places. Let's explore restaurants and cuisines that I haven't experienced. Take me to a trattoria or an oyster bar. Let's share small plates and connect that way. We can go to a farmer's market and eat unpasteurized cheese or try guacamole with crickets. Come and watch American football with me. I'll explain the rules. But be warned, I will always have McNulty in tow. My profile now clearly says that I quit drinking in April 2020. I am upfront in my messaging before meeting anyone that I am not a drinker. I also don't respond to anyone who is pictured chugging beers or lists wine or cocktails as their interests. I have no problem with drinkers. It's just not how I want to spend my time. And I have no interest in changing anyone else. Last week, a guy with whom I had been exchanging messages once again ignored that I had told him seven or eight times that I don't drink. 
When I called him on it, his response was, Sorry, I don't have a record of people I speak to and their individual dietary requirements. (laughs) I think I will give that one a miss. I am now once again unapologetically brash and brazen and me and still worried that their picture is going to be old and they won't wear a mask. But the dates are definitely improving. That was... I have finally learned how to date without drinking. Here's my sober advice by Jamie Klingler, read by Safia Inger. That's all from us. This has been Weekend, a Guardian podcast. If you're enjoying it, please make sure to like, subscribe to and rate the podcast. Just search for Weekend wherever you get your podcasts. The articles were read by Neve Cusack and Safia Inger and presented by me, Savannah Ayode-Greaves. This episode was produced by Rachel Porter. Original music by Axel Kakutier. The executive producers are Danielle Stevens and Nicole Jackson. Join us again next Saturday. Thanks for listening. This is The Guardian. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.